to Wilmot Dixon's Building Knowledge podcast series, with this episode hosted by me, Andy Gaskell, Group Communications Manager at Wilmot Dixon. Today I've had the pleasure of being joined by uh, the renowned Sustainable Development Campaigner and Wilmot Dixon Non-Executive Director, Jonathan Porritt. We'll be talking all about the COP26 conference, and what it means to the built environment and whether the conference achieved its goals. Thank you for taking the time to join me today, Jonathan. Um, let's kick off with a big question, which I'm sure is on everybody's mind. Overall, was COP26 a success? It wasn't a failure in as much as it did deliver on some of the objectives that the government had determined in advance, but it certainly wasn't an outright success. There were so many question marks left at the end, so many places where the actual achievements fell short of what was required. And I guess it as in so many of these things, it comes down to relative achievements versus absolute achievements. So if you think about it from the perspective of what we now need to be doing because of the science of climate change, so in absolute terms, we are still way off the pace. I mean, the conclusion at the end of COP is that we're heading for a temperature increase of above two degrees centigrade by the end of this century. You can go into decimal points, but that's basically the story. And we all know, because of the endless reiteration of the importance of keeping 1.5 alive, we know that the only safe operating space for humankind is no more than 1.5. So we fell short on that overall big, absolute science-driven demand. Relatively speaking, a lot of things moved forward some progress was made. It'll be a bit arcane for people to think about this, but the rule book for the Paris Agreement six years ago, which the countries had not been able to get agreement on over six years, the rule book was at last signed off in Glasgow. So six years after the Paris Agreement, we now have agreement as to how to implement the Paris Agreement. Yay! This is very encouraging. So things did move forward and there were some important moments in the two weeks, important agreements, particularly in the first week before they settled down to the actual mechanics of negotiating the climate pact itself. Okay, Um, and just kind of from your outlook at the start, do do you think it's a cheat? I mean, trying to get hundreds of people to negotiate and agree on anything is a uh, is a substantial challenge. Um, do, Do you think it's achieve more than you thought it might do or has it fallen kind of short of your expectations? I had pretty low expectations for COP26, the basis of the run-up to the conference and everything that has been uh, so painfully negotiated over the last two years. Um, So it came out pretty much where I imagined it would come out. I I think you're right. I I don't think people really understand the complexity not just of negotiating with um, 190 different countries, but of requiring total unanimity. Every single country has to agree to every single word in a long document, which is why it all got pretty fraught at the end when um, India and China and one or two other countries decided that they would press for a word change from phasing out to phasing down. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was a big enough deal to cause considerable consternation right at the last moment. But getting total unanimity between 
the high ambition countries, as it were, those that really want to do a lot more, the small island states, the EU, those who can really see the uh, nature of the challenge for what it is. And then all the fossil fuel countries, countries like Saudi Arabia, Russia, um, America itself, Brazil, getting agreement between all of these countries is just an incredibly difficult thing. So the UN process itself is remarkably hard to um, to to ensure, to, to guarantee that we get the kind of outcomes that we need. And a lot of people at the end of this COP were questioning whether or not this incredibly labored, unanimity-driven process is fit for purpose when we need to start moving so much faster. Okay. Um, after the fortnight of uh, of negotiations and the absolute endurance of it, um, a pact was was made at the end, and the overarching kind of uh, headlines that you read of it is the pact keeps 1.5 degrees within reach. Is is this attainable, uh, or is this uh, kind of spiel off the back end of it? Well, 1.5 degrees centigrade, no more than 1.5, is still just about alive, um, and I know this will sound like a bit of a rehash of the rhetoric before Glasgow, but frankly, we won't be able to definitively answer the question as to whether 1.5 is viable or not until after the conference next year in Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh. And the reason for that is that one of the good things that was achieved right at the end was a, an agreement that countries would be asked to look again at their nationally determined contributions, which essentially captures their ambition level mm. for reducing emissions of greenhouse gases, would be asked to look again, not with 2050 in mind, which is, of course, the primary focus that we saw in Glasgow, but with 2030 in mind. So what are countries going to be able to do to achieve real reductions in emissions between now and 2030. And quite honestly, that 1.5 degrees centigrade threshold depends far more on what happens between now and 2030 than it does on vague promises about 2050, 2060 or 2070. Far more. So I know this is going to sound really, really disappointing for people, but there is no definitive answer to the question of is 1.5 alive until roughly this time next year. Okay. Um, do you see the um, the nationally uh, determined contributions are sufficient, or is it too early to tell at this stage? The the NDCs nationally determined contributions, as we measure them now, are completely inadequate. If governments delivered on everything they promised, and that is obviously a huge if. If they delivered on everything they promised, it would still take us to somewhere around 2.4 degrees centigrade average temperature increase by the end of the century. And in the terms of most climate scientists, that's pretty much curtains for human civilization. We've sort of lost it by then. The damage done to our economies would be massive. The numbers of people whose lives would be disruptive would be incalculable. Um, numbers of climate refugees on the move just so staggeringly disruptive for societies the world over. So at the moment, the NDCs, these voluntary targets, don't forget voluntary, not mandated by anybody, the voluntary targets 
do not provide humankind with the conditions for a reasonable prospect of good lives for people in the future. Okay. Um, before we get stuck into the uh, the details of different things that were discussed and negotiated, have you got any just kind of kind of final thoughts on the uh, on the overall pact as a whole, or anything else that you'd like to add to that? No, that's fine. I mean, I think that we've touched on most of the the main issues around the actual pact itself. I mean, I'm I can just comment very quickly on the the um, linguistic side of it, if you like. Um, so there was a lot of concern about the last minute rewriting of phasing out um, to phasing down, insisted on by China and India and other coal based countries. To be honest, I'm not sure that's as significant as people are making out. These countries are going to do what they're going to do with their coal industries anyway, regardless of a phase out or phase down. Um, so I think people got a bit overexcited about that. But for some of the poorer nations and some of the most vulnerable countries, those who are already very seriously impacted by climate impacts, um, that was just a signal of the lack of sincerity, the lack of intent on the part of big countries like China and India and America um, to actually understand their plight, understand their predicament. So it had a symbolic value rather than a practical and political value. Okay. Um, th there were numerous deals or, or commitments announced throughout the uh, throughout the fortnight of COP26, you know, from uh, reducing deforestation, coal reduction, uh, methane also. Are, are, are there any kind of real standout ones to you? Anything that got you kind of particularly excited? In the first week of COP, there was obviously a lot of energy invested in some of these um, additional agreements, if you like, phasing out deforestation and so on. I think these are just, you know, just not really worth the paper they're written on. We had a declaration in 2014 about ending deforestation. Um, practically nothing has happened since 2014. And the test of this is whether or not countries like Brazil, because Brazil did sign up to this new ending deforestation target. We'll know whether this target has any validity or not. Um, by the middle of next year, if Bolsonaro in Brazil doesn't actually change his policies in Brazil, then we'll know that the new agreement on forests is as worthless as the old agreement. But there are some things that are genuinely important that, to jump out of one. Firstly, the agreement on methane. Methane is an important greenhouse gas. It doesn't get anything like the attention that carbon dioxide does, but it's important because when it's in the atmosphere as methane, it is a very much more powerful warming gas than CO2. And what that means is that it increases the temperature, the rise in temperatures more than CO2 molecule for molecule. So the agreement to reduce emissions of methane by 30% by 2030 is significant. And there are a lot of countries now are going to be focused on that. And we're going to see more of that in the agreement between the USA and China in terms of what they can do to cooperate around methane emission reductions. The other thing that I think was significant was the emphasis on innovation, the so-called Glasgow breakthroughs, these hard to abate sectors. And this obviously concerns us enormously in construction. What's going to happen around steel, around cement, around shipping, around aviation? And they came up with a whole set of agreements to 
accelerate investments in new innovations in each of these different hard to abate sectors. And I think that's that's genuine new energy and a lot more new money going into this because investors can see now there's really not much point putting any more money into coal or even into other fossil fuels. If they want good returns through over the next 20 years, they're going to have to find ways of putting their money into the really smart new technologies that will secure these decarbonisation outcomes. Okay, um, we, we talked about um, sort of positives and what you think is important uh, in terms of some of the uh, some of the agreements. Is, is, is there anything that you've been particularly disappointed with, or any deals that you think have, have fallen short, or, or more time should have been given to? Well, the worst thing of all was the failure on the part of the rich world to understand the condition of many countries today suffering right now, not at some point in the future, but right now from climate disasters, climate impacts. Um, some African countries, it is now reckoned, are seeing something like 5% of their total GDP already having to go into dealing with climate disasters. So you can imagine what that would look like here in the UK. If 5% of our GDP had to be allocated to cope with climate disasters, the rich world behaved deplorably in this regard in Glasgow. We failed to deliver on the $100 billion support, which was promised back in 2009. And Barack Obama reminded people how important a pledge it was back then. I have to say he did absolutely nothing to deliver on that pledge himself. So it was a bit galling to hear him revisit his own level of inadequacy. And the rich world since 2009 has been utterly defective in terms of coming up with this funding mechanism. So they've made a vague commitment to increase the level of funding by 2025. Poor countries will know that's just another promise as meaningless as the promise that was made back in 2009. And there will now be a new discussion. It's going to be called the Glasgow Dialogue about this issue of loss and damage which is an acknowledgement that rich world industrialized countries have caused this problem and poor world countries who've made practically no contribution to the problem at all of accelerating climate change will need to be compensated for the damage that we have done through our emissions of greenhouse gases and that is going to be a huge issue in Egypt next year. Okay. Um, just looking a bit close to home, what, what do the outcomes of COP26 mean to the UK? I think there'll be additional pressure brought to bear now on the UK government to take seriously some of the very high levels of rhetoric that we've heard from the Prime Minister and Secretary of State at Bayes, Kwasi Kwarteng and so on. The charge of hypocrisy was levelled at the UK government throughout the Glasgow conference. There are something like 40 new applications for oil and gas investments in the UK coming forward. It's impossible for the UK to approve these. It really should now make absolutely certain that the big Cambo development in the North Sea does not go ahead. And of course, it's, it's got to put an end to this proposal for a new coal mine in Cumbria. So hypocrisy is going to weigh heavily on Boris and his ministers now. And secondly, they're going to have to make good on this 
very high level of rhetoric. If you take something like the heat and buildings strategy, um, the whole area of heat is absolutely critical to decarbonizing the UK economy. We're way off the pace when it comes to thinking both about standards for new build in this country and about retro retrofitting our existing housing stock so that we can actually massively reduce the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions from heating in this country. And the current strategy, the heat and building strategy, has already been described as woefully inadequate by literally everybody, literally everybody in the business. Post-COP, it's just an embarrassment. So the government's going to have to revisit the whole heat strategy within the next year, because if it doesn't improve on that before COP27, I'm sure people are just going to be um, outraged at, at how poor this particular policymaking exercise has been. Um, I think um, looking at my next question, you, you might have already answered most of it, but um, I just wanted to um, kind of pick your, your brain specifically on the uh, on the built environment. You know, what does um, COP26 kind of mean to that? How, how should we be playing our part and what do you see kind of changing going forward? Yeah, I think there was acknowledgement during COP because, of course, there was a, a whole special day for the built environment and there was much more focus on the degree to which we need to address built environment challenges, depending on how you cut the figures, obviously, but 40% of total global emissions come from the built environment in one way or another, both in terms of construction, uh, infrastructure, and then the operation of the buildings, uh, etc. So we know how big a challenge this is, and to have it as the focus of a whole day was really good. And there was a lot of much more um, astute and well-informed debate about how to address these things. I think it was particularly important that the UK Green Building Council chose to um, issue its new advice on what is called embodied carbon on that built environment day. This is a huge issue for the industry as a whole. Um, at the moment, the balance of our emissions come from what's called operational carbon, from the emissions from running our buildings, heating and electricity, appliances, and so on. That will change. And as we get more efficient in the way we run our buildings and we have more renewable electricity on the grid, we will actually see a move to embodied carbon becoming much more important than operational carbon. So every single company involved in the construction and built environment sector now is going to have to up its game when it comes to embodied carbon. This is a big challenge for Wilmot Dixon. As you know, we've already set ourselves some very demanding targets in this area. We're already working across the company now to find ways of helping our colleagues in the LCOs to um, become more engaged with our customers on looking at embodied carbon and how to reduce embodied carbon. And you can just see after the Glasgow sessions on this that that's going to become even more important. OK. Um, are there any particular practices that uh, the UK should be learning from in terms of mainland Europe or um, you know, across the water into the US or so for building practices or uh, anything that you, you, you can add from those side of things? I think everybody recognises that if we really wanted to treat this as a genuine emergency, a climate emergency, we would be raising the minimum standards required for new build and the ambition level for retrofit, we would be doing this in the next year, 18 months. We all, everybody knows how to build a zero carbon new house here in the UK. 
for 30 years, the Passive House Standard has set examples of how to build uh, near zero or completely zero carbon buildings. And it's now become commonplace across Europe. There is more of it now in the UK happily, which is good. And I think we will see more people begin to understand the value of that. It's obviously very important to Wilmot Dixon. And we've got a number of big new passive house projects on the go, as you know. But this is sort of something about confidence in the industry, a realization that we can do this and we now have to do it very urgently. So for me, it's about pressing that this is an emergency button rather than simply waiting for 2025 for building regs to get a little bit more demanding and then another ratcheting up the building regulations by 2030. That's wholly inadequate. And that's what the government is now going to have to address. OK, um, at, at the start of uh, COP26, I think it might have been the, the Monday, I dialed into um, the, the oldest great gate seminar, which um, Rick Wilmot spoke at. And uh, Theresa May, the, uh, the chair of the group, uh, made a couple of points at the start, which really kind of stuck with me. And one about one was partly about kind of sustainability, with it needing to be two things kind of good for business and good for the economy. So essentially kind of kind of putting it at the heart of projects and putting it at the heart of builds. Um, where do you see the UK going from, from from that perspective? How do we make sure sustainability gets to the top of a customer's requirement list and we uh, essentially kind of build in the requirements over uh, things such as cost or uh, or other requirements that they may have? We have to mandate it. Um, there's no good any longer simply waving a magic wand and saying this has to be a win for business as well as a win for the climate and the environment. Those days are long, long gone. This requires a completely different level of leadership. And, uh, you know, good good that our former prime minister is still banging what is called the win-win drum. Frankly, the win-win drum was yesterday's drum. Now we have to march to the beat of a very different drum. And that is a drum that tells us this is what we have to do, whether it is going to automatically enhance shareholder interest or not. And governments need to get on that page as fast as they possibly can. So for me, in all of these different areas now, the real story will be how quickly does the government move to mandate things? So if you think about the heat strategy that I was talking about before, the whole question about heat pumps and how quickly we're going to see the adoption and installation of more heat pumps, that all depends on the supply chain for heat pumps being in place. That all depends on ensuring there are enough skilled operatives out there, skilled staff to do this massive change around in the heating technologies for this country. You can't just shake a fist at this and say, oh, we hope there'll be more people qualified to do this stuff. You have to sit down and do detailed planning as to how to create the value chain. Okay, um, you've given some fantastic insight, Jonathan, and I'm extremely, extremely grateful for uh, some of the details you've been able to provide. Um, just before we close off, uh, are there any final takeaway points that uh, that you'd like to get across re re regarding COP26 or anything that we haven't covered already? I think one good thing from the whole COP26 saga is that more people in this country now understand the nature of the challenge we face. Astonishingly, there was still some doubt, some confusion about that before COP26. Now, having listened to world leaders and having understood the nature of the urgency here, I think the vast majority of citizens in the UK 
will understand exactly why we have to be moving so much further, so much faster than we have done up until that point. And that has to be a really good thing. A huge thank you to Jonathan for joining me to give his expert opinion on COP26. To subscribe to our Building Knowledge podcast series, just search for Wilmot Dixon from wherever you get your podcasts from. 